Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today was used to giving orders. In the high-stress environment of the USS Santa Fe, a nuclear-powered submarine, it was crucial his men did their job well. But the ship was dogged by poor morale, poor performance and the worst retention in the fleet. One day, he unknowingly gave an impossible order, and his crew tried to follow it anyway. He realised he was leading in a culture of followers, and they were all in danger unless they fundamentally changed the way they did things. He took matters into his own hands and pushed for leadership at every level. Before long, his crew became fully engaged and the Santa Fe skyrocketed from worst to first in the fleet. No matter your business or your position, you can apply his approach to create a workplace where everyone takes responsibility for their actions, people are healthier and happier, and everyone is a leader. We welcome author of Turn the Ship Around and his latest book, Leadership is Language, David Marquet. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Aidan. Thanks for having me on your show. Welcome, all listeners. It's great to have you on the show, David. I loved how you applied your learnings from reading management and leadership books and frameworks and then overlaid your own fantastic story. But let's jump into it because there is a line I pulled from the book and I've shared it with a few people before our show today and I absolutely loved it. You absolutely nailed the challenge that we have in leadership today. You said people are frustrated. Most of us are ready to give it our all. But when we start a job, we are usually full of ideas for ways to do things better. We eagerly offer our whole intellectual capacity only to be told that it's not our job, that it's been tried before, or that we shouldn't rock the boat. Initiative is viewed with skepticism. Our suggestions are ignored. We are told to follow instructions. Our work is reduced to following a set of prescriptions. Our creativity and innovations go unappreciated. Eventually, we stop trying and we just toe the line. And with resignation, we just get by. Too often, that's where the story of work life ends. Many of our audience and for you, the root cause is our painfully outdated leadership model as you experienced firsthand in the US Navy. It was our first day at sea that I gave that bad order. It wasn't like a year in. It was like right away, instantly. And it really hit me that we had an organization that was so good at doing stuff, so good at doing what we're told. And I could see, I mean, I kind of felt it beforehand. Hey, I got more to contribute. Hey, I got more ideas. Hey, there's more thinking going on in the organization. But I could, when I gave the order and the crew followed it, basically unthinkingly, I could see so clearly the problem with our leadership model. And everything, once I started looking at it, everything was wrong. Everything we did was wrong. The way we ran meetings was wrong. The way we did management was wrong. The way we um, uh, promoted people, the way we evaluated everything. Wrong's a hard word. It was outdated. It was designed for a time when I didn't really care what you thought. I really we needed you to do stuff because humans were hired in industrial age factories to do physical labor. And there was the thinking was reserved for a few people at the top. 
And so this, this structure is embedded in our language in these very subtle but very powerful ways. The fact that we talk about people, we pay some people by salary, some by hourly. So we talk about leaders and followers. This is the most fundamental. Like, what, why, why is that two separate groups of people? And it hit me that these were all unhelpful. And in my, my personal situation was I couldn't give orders. I didn't know the ship. We were, I was going to kill someone. And so I made this decision. Not, the problem was that not that I gave a bad order. That's always the way it was before. Oh, if you view yourself as a decision maker and something goes wrong, you gave a bad order. You got to give better orders. And, and here the, the situation was I needed to not be the one who gives order. I needed to design a system where the right decision came from the team independent of me. And it totally changed and I always thought, I always pictured in my head this, it was like a speedometer. It was like a, a, a gauge. And I said, what is the total percent of brain power that the crew is using right now? The entire 150 people on USS Santa Fe. Well, I feel like I'm using all of mine. I saw there's 100% for one person. <laughs> but I think it was dismally low numbers. I mean, it wasn't because they were bad. It wasn't because they were brain dead. It wasn't because they weren't educated. It wasn't because they didn't know their jobs. It's because this structure, even though we paid lip service to it, when we were really honest, it wasn't about thinking and innovation. It was about doing what you're told. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to that, David, because I love how you build to this. And you, you go on to say that the leader-follower model permeates some of our most popular novels and movies about leadership. It is exactly because the leader-follower way of doing business has been so successful that it is both so appealing and so hard to let go of. That is the problem. So we have a sort of emotional um, affinity for it. It's, it's what... It, 99% of all movies show because it, the camera has to have a focal point. And, and the, what better focal point than the leader who maybe makes some blunder or has some flaw and then struggles to overcome it. And then and through his typically or her decision-making acumen extracts the team from the problem. And this is such a seductively unhelpful structure like well who are all the rest of these people what are they doing what are they thinking how are they contributing no they're just they're just act they're just pawns in the movie script <laughs> they often have nothing to say so is this really how we're gonna i actually had a guy quote to me for some screwed up thing that he was doing as CEO. He said, well, in Game of Thrones, I just said, let me stop you right there. <laughs> if we're going to design something for drama, why would we apply it to leadership? Leadership is about an absence of drama. Leadership is about distributed activity, distributed thinking, not a focal point. It's a, to a totally opposite. We always say a good movie has to come from bad leadership and a bad movie comes from good leadership. Typically, the, typically the, uh, the leader fixes a problem that he or her actually caused. Uh, not, not 100%, but in general, a lot of these movies, and they really come from an older time, and, they, and, they're, and they're reinforcing this model. But, and more powerful is the language. 
we have phrases in our language, which we say without thinking. We have words, we have phrases, we have sentence structure, and we have the way we have set ways of interacting, which are not helpful. A simple example. If I said to someone, hey, I, I, think, I think differently about this or something like that, Nine out of 10 people I run into, nine out, nine out of 10 meetings we observe, what happens is that the, the other person, we call it reply, react, respond. They defend their position. Well, no, 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 let me explain. Like, I don't really care about your explanation. I'm telling you I see it differently. No, 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 no let me tell you again. Yeah. <laughs> let me speak louder and slow. It's like, you're, it's, it's so annoying and demeaning and un disrespectful. So, what, what we want, we say is be curious before compelling. Now, at the end of the day, you got to make a decision, launch the product, don't launch the product. And that will rest with, with, with the leader. But how you get there really can be so much better. We always say you want to structure the meeting so it's easy for the people who think differently than the group to speak up. This is the essence of innovation. Innovate to, if you want innovation, you got to A, someone's got to conceive of the idea. B, they have to vocalize it. And C, then you got to build the thing. Now, I don't know what the, how, what the fall off is, whether it's a, you, you lose half and then 90%. Uh, certainly there's a big fall off between uh, vocalizing it and building it. But there is another big fall off between people thinking it and not saying it. And, and we don't even have data on that because you don't even know how many times people thought of an idea in your organization or a better way to do something. I'm talking about innovation on, on a very continuous and very small level. It could be something as simple as uh, some of the things we did on the submarine was I, I would take uh, a, a, a sailor when we'd be at battle stations and I would just say, stand two feet to your left. Now, I don't know, this is not gonna, gonna go down the hall of in, innovation. <laughs> Um, uh, best ever's, but then they could see something they couldn't see, but they could see a display they couldn't see before or, or something. And it, it was, but people wouldn't say like, why didn't you not say you couldn't, like, I don't know. I just, we always do that following the procedure and uh, no. And so the idea is the team has to embrace the um, divergent, dissenting and outlying opinions. And, and as a leader, you need to run the meeting in a way that makes it easy for those opinions to come out. And what people, leaders say, blah, 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 blah. First of all, speaking first, that narrows the groups. Then think about it in terms of variability. You want very variability of, length, of ideas and thought, not reducing variability. That's what the industrial age was about. So that's why it's fundamentally different. So the leader says, so, okay, we've, we're gonna launch the product next week, right? We've done all the testing, right? We good here? All these phrases are the exact opposite of what you want to say. All those phrases are designed to get people to go along to get it done. It's a bias towards, yeah, okay, we're going to launch a product. We're going to get it done. It's not about, let's actually deeply explore the decision. Is it the right decision to launch a product? Is it, right. If the product's 737 max, if the product is starting a op medical operation, if the product is software to, to have uh, autonomous vehicle. All these things have life-changing perhaps repercussions. And we 
we think that what we're trying to do is bend everyone to our will. And, and, it, and this makes it harder for people to tell us that they see the world differently. I love how you do this in the book. You, for people who haven't read the book yet, I highly recommend it. David constantly interweaves his own story and experiences. And as I mentioned earlier on, all those books and all those frameworks that he had deeply studied and then poses these questions at the end of the chapter for us to take home and work with. But you share one of those stories I thought it'd be great to share is you tell us about a key moment on your first job as a junior officer on this USS Sunfish with a new captain, Commander, later Rear Admiral Mark Palais. Another sort of life-changing moment for me. It was early in my career. I was 25 or so. And I, I like to say none of my new ideas are my new ideas. They all come from other places, sometimes just directly. And so I have, when I went to my very first submarine, I was steeped in this command and control, tell people what to do, structure. And I just said, okay, well, that's how it is. It doesn't really feel super satisfying to me, but I got it. That's my job. And I could do it. And I was actually pretty good at doing what I was told, tell people what to do. And I got to my first submarine. My first captain was exactly this way. Exactly. It's just exactly how you could would picture a crusty old Cold War submarine commander. And then we got this new guy, Mark Poliath. And... It was like a, it was like sunshine and fresh air. <laughs> and by this point, I was sort of um, senior in that position. So I, I was g gaining respect and trust. And so I was one of the officers that he, he would lean on. And I remember we were, uh, we were just driving the submarine from point A to point B. And... Uh, we were in the Atlantic. We were far away from the from the Russians. There was no possibility of cold Cold War actions or anything like that. So we were just on peacetime training, basically. And we could see this um, ship, and we wanted to go. Um, I could through the periscope. I could see a, a tanker. And one of the things that we don't do with our sonar system at all is to go active, which is like ping, ping. When in the movie you hear the submarines going ping, ping, ping. The surface ships will do that. Submariners will never do that because it gives your position away. I mean, you can, in combat, you might do it as a last resort. Once you already know that he knows you're there, might as well. And, and, and what that does, it tells you not only the direction, but it tells you how far it is. So we're like, well, hey, we're peacetime. We see a ship. Why don't we just practice with the sonar system? We'll go ping, ping, ping. And uh, we'll rotate the sonarman through, and they can actually hear what it sounds like. because you know, It's a skill that atrophies. And it was all well-intentioned. So I called the captain, but this requires captain's permission because that ping sound um, gives this, potentially gives you position away. So it's um, those kind of things require the captain's authorization. So I called the captain. I said, hey, I got this idea, blah, 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 blah. And uh, well, actually, no, what happened was I was about to call him. And then all of a sudden, he I looked over and he was standing next to me. He's like, How, like when did you get <laughs> I realized later when I became a captain that there's a speaker in your stateroom where you can hear everyone talking. And so he heard, obviously he heard us talking about this. And, and so he just came out, he's standing next to me, go, oh, hey, so I got this idea, blah, blah, blah. And I would like to go permission. And he says, why don't you just tell me what you intend to do? And I was like, uh, I don't know, because I'm an idiot, because <laughs> I wasn't trained that way. So I said, okay, well, I intend to go 
active. Here's why. Blah, 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 blah. He said, fine. And walked away. And I was like, what? And uh, so there's like this language. It, it, it's it's this like military, like so, uh, sonar con, line up to go active, uh, 280 milliseconds, PDPC on target, Sierra. And like, there's this very sort of like, we're going into combat. And it makes the, it's actually making the hair on the back of my neck stick up right now as I'm saying that. And sonar is like, Cons on our eye, line up for active target Sierra one five, but bearing blah blah blah. And like everyone, if everyone in the control room was like, mm-hmm. like this is really gonna happen. And then, and then I thought, then I say, go active. And then, and there's like, when you have a nuclear submarine, you have a lot of power. And that thing, boom, is like this, boom. And you can hear it in the hole everywhere in the submarine, in the, in the engine room. And I could hear that pulse rippled out, pew, and it—it's hard to describe. It's hard to to convey. Um, but the hair on the back of my neck is is literally sticking up, and it's like we're in charge. There's no captain, just a bunch of twenty-five-year-olds are running this nuclear submarine, and they were like, "Bring the sonar!" And like, and all the sonar members coming up, and they were super pumped up, and they were doing it, and they were listening, and they're like, "Oh, that got it," because we do it in a trainer, but it's not the same. And the guys in the engine room are they're hearing the ship going active, and they're like, "What's going on?" Like, I don't know, Mark is going crazy, <laughs> and then everyone wanted like, and then so after that, they all started coming. Oh, we want to be in your watch section. You guys do fun things. And then I would call the cat every every time. I, I started like, I would call him like five times. He's like, okay, stop. Call me at the beginning with your whole plan. <laughs> and we do things like, uh, we go really fast. And we put the rudder hard over and we see how fat, how we'd be basically doing donuts in the ocean. Now we have tables that tell you when you do that, you can turn in a certain number of feet. You can turn the submarine at a certain turning radius, basically. But uh, we discovered interesting things. For example, when you turn the submarine in one direction, you turn tighter than when you turn in the other direction. Turning right is a tighter. And it has to do with the way the propeller blades, which are rotating, the way they hit the rudder, it has a small but detectable. So if you need to really turn tight, you turn to the right. And we... um, this actually saved me a long time later on the Santa Fe. We had to make a tight. We were on the surface, but the same effect. And uh, we were about to run into something. That's another story. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but, but we always trained right hard rudder. If it didn't make a difference, you just I'm t- I'm coming in ninety. And I got T bone this thing. I need to turn. And so we so we learned things that other crews didn't learn. And we knew the submarine better than anybody else. And it was fun. Because we were learning, and that's a, such a human thing, and we we kit we we steal that from our team when we go out there. Oh, I'll be the I'll be I'll be the teller, you be the doer, um, and, and it's like there's no learning. It's not fun. And it's and like where's the innovation? Like what are you talking about? You you killed it. You killed it twenty years ago. I love how those experiences and and why you mentioned this one shape you later on as a leader but also now in this book and your work now in your leadership workshops and your keynotes because you give us an exercise then you call it a mechanism that a procedure that you call the i intend to procedure i'd love if you'd share this with our audience now notice he didn't tell me 
oh, be empowered. Oh, you're, he, he never said those words. He just said, say these words. Now, it, on, the, on, on the sunfish, it was so I kind of selected people. And um, when I got to Santa Fe, then I kind of buried it because the very next submarine was exact, back to the same old thing. And then when I got to Santa Fe, I, I was like, oh, yeah, but I intend to. Let's try that. That's, the, that's how I need the crew to talk to me. That's how we'll give them ownership. I, we didn't talk about empowerment. We just say, hey, say these words. When you come to me, don't say request permission to say, I intend to. I intend to go active on sonar. Here's why. And it was typically two, two pieces. Here's why it's safe. Here's why it's the right thing to do. And again, it, it was the exact same effect. I could see it in them. I could see them like light up. I could see them chat, chattering to, the, to each other. I could see them walking tall. They, they started wearing their Santa Fe ball caps on the pier. We were the worst performing. We took over. It was, no one was wearing. So they couldn't get out of their uniforms and their Santa Fe hats as soon, as, soon enough. It was magic. You said something here that really resonated with me. I loved how you phrased this and, and your language is brilliant. And, and, you know, it's no surprise that you went on to write the, the second book on language. You said, as the level of control is divested, it becomes more and more important that the team be aligned with the goal of an organization. You talk about that when you divested control, you needed some common North Star, excuse the pun, to actually bring everybody together. So you're running an organization, you tell everyone exactly what to do. It doesn't really matter what, what they're building. They could be building tanks or cars and, or, or why they're doing it. You don't care. They don't care because they're not being asked to make decisions that matter. And... So we have in our heads, we have these, this, this tension, which is, well, I can control everything. Okay, so imagine a military unit marching in step. I can control everything. I get everyone moving in the same direction and it's controlled, but there's no distributed thinking. Or I can let people make their own decisions and have distributed thinking, but then it's going to be sort of semi-chaotic and, and we're going to have a lot of activity, which isn't aligned to the organization's ultimate goal. And these two things in our minds rest in tension. It's, there's an or between them. I get this or that. And that is a false dichotomy. You can have both. And, and with intent, we, we did because we definitely had distributed decision making. They owned the decision. When you go to your boss, they, your boss hasn't asked you when you're going to load torpedoes. You go up there and you say, hey, I intend to load torpedoes tomorrow at noontime, because I can see our mission's changing, we need torpedoes, not missiles and torpedo tubes, then you own it. You're happy. It's yours. You feel a sense of pride. But at the same time, the fact that we're talking about ahead of time allows us to, to have a conversation. Well, why? We like, and ideally before that, the leader is conveying, hey, uh, our mission is going to change in two days. We're going to move from this kind of mission to this kind of mission. Everyone review actions necessary to support the new mission. And then let me know uh, what you need. And that's the way it would sound on, on the submarine as opposed to, okay, let's get out the checklist and do A, B, C, D, E and do exactly what it says. Because then you just basically, you just gave everybody a pass on thinking. And then you don't be surprised <laughs> 
So there's two problems. One, they're not going to come up with the ideas because they don't need to. So why spend the brain power? And even if they do, they're not going to say them because it's futile. You added here that you can become impatient. And you, you did in, in times, you mentioned this in the book, sometimes you became exhausted with the whole thing. But you were equally exhausted being the person everybody came to all the time. So you needed to delegate. And you said here, it was the time you were in Maui, and you were off course, and you resisted the urge to provide solutions. And you say this is an absolutely core principle of leadership. So imagine we have a two by two matrix. I know the answer. I don't know the answer. I tell people what to do. I don't tell them what to do. And you say, well, where do you want to operate? Well, I said, oh, that's, that's a stupid question. It's easy. You want to know the answers and you tell your team what to do because then that gets them doing it. And then you get rewarded for that. And they make progress on the task and everything. everybody's happy. Well, not quite. They're not happy. They're not thinking. There's no innovation. It's static. We don't get better over time. So say, well, okay, what if you don't know the answer? Well, in the rare times where I don't know the answer, then I'll rest on my team and I'll lean on them a little bit. I'll say, hey, what do you guys think? Blah, blah, blah. But those are, that's the two dimensions that we operate on. And what I learned was by not telling my guys what to do, I saw how powerful it was. And so even when eventually I learned the Santa Fe and I would think, you know what? I've seen this before. I know the answer here. I know what's going to happen. I know the best way to approach this. Uh, I still would resist telling the team what to do. Now, this for me was very difficult. I'm sure, man. Jesus. It was very difficult. I mean, it was hard enough not to tell them when you knew you didn't know the answer, but then when you thought, you know, but here's the trick. First of all, you don't always like, I'm not talking about things like if, hey, there's a security uh, gap in the software. Should we fix it or not? Yeah, of course, obviously. But I'm talking about things like, well, how do you redesign the product for the future? How's, it, how's the market going to react to something? Uh, should, is the product ready for launch? Have you accepted the right balance or risk? I mean, questions which have basically unknowable answers until the future comes. And the, the reality is you don't know the answer. You, you might have a hunch, you might, but uh, that's number one. And number two is, even if you did, don't you want to know what your team thinks? And don't you want to let them have the joy of discovering the answer? I say yes, because now what's happening is, let's say two weeks from now, they have a similar situation. They got to make a decision. You're hiking in the Alps. Do you want them to have to call you every time? <laughs> Some people do. Some people like it. They'll, they'll say, oh, no, no, I hate it when everyone calls me, but they really love it. But as you say, that's absolutely exhausting. And being captain is absolutely exhausting. You're exhausted all the time because everybody's coming to you the whole time. But you said something there that triggered me and I jumped to the end of my notes because we live in an age of absolute uncertainty. And, and this is what you're talking about here is you ask us to question how comfortable we are with uncertainty, how comfortable are, are we with showing our gut feelings to our staffs, we didn't have even we didn't have the language to express doubt, ambiguity or uncertainty. And lots of people in business, like you didn't at the time before you developed this framework and your books, didn't have the language to be able to express this either. Yeah, I we didn't even know how to say some, something like, well, it all started with very simple questions like, 
will that plan work? Well, I don't know. I mean, the re reality is, I don't know. I could now, if I ask the question, well, how likely is the plan to work? You could say 80%, or 51%, or 20%, or whatever. But it started with we lived in, we were trying to sh shoehorn a probabilistic, uncertain world into a binary, deterministic language. And it just, it, 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 again, it hit me over and over and over again that we're just using the wrong words. I don't, I, so, but it starts with the leader. If you ask your team, will it work? Is that assumption going to be true? Will a client like this? Uh, and on and on and on, then you're going to get simplistic binary responses. And by the way, I basically think you're trying to make someone else take responsibility for the future. I mean, imagine the 737 Max project team leader going to the board and saying, hey, things ready to go. Oh, is it is it safe? Well, what does that mean? Are we going to ABA, like how safe? What it was one accident in every million, 10 million, 100 million? Like it's, there's all, so these things don't mean anything. They, they, they shouldn't be expressed in binary language, but we're, are, we're programmed to ask questions that way because it's a shortcut. This goes back to your framing in a way when you were 25, when you were on, when you were given the responsibility that you were invigorated by that and then you passed it on and you you nailed something here that is core to innovation that most innovation teams a lot of our audience are innovation teams within large or crystallized organizations and they get constantly asked when will this be profitable and it's the same thing they don't know because they're inventing the future right so that's one thing but there's a thing you talked about that i've rarely seen written about which is so important there's a saying it's a french saying that's basically après moi la déluge, which means after me the flood. So I don't care what comes after me. And we see this in so many organizations where the leader will milk the cash cow, make profits today at the expense of the organization tomorrow. And I pulled a line where you absolutely nailed this because this was something you didn't want to do because it was ingrained in the structure of leadership in the Navy. And you said if they did anything for the long run, it was because of an enlightened sense, sense of duty, not because there was anything in the system that rewarded them for it. We didn't associate an officer's leadership effectiveness with how well his unit performed after he left. And you you wanted to change this. Yeah, and I got close with the Air Force. Um, uh, like like we were talking about before the show, you can't be a prophet in your own town. Anyway, the Air Force hired me, and I went in and talked to those guys, and they really liked a lot of of what we did. And so when it got to okay, now what are we going to actually do and change? I said, well, this would have a huge impact if you evaluate not everybody in the Air Force who changes jobs, but just the commander, the wing commander, the squadron commander, base commander. A year after they leave a job, uh, they're going to get an evaluation. We do annual evaluations in the military. So they're going to get an evaluation from wherever they are. And we should evaluate them based on how the unit did during the year that they left. And uh, we had this great discussion. Ultimately, they decided not to do it, which was made me very sad, of course. But uh, the point, because the, the reason they was, well, there's so many variables that are not in control at that point, but, but here's the key. Think about the behavior. So you, you have a year to go 
And you know, you're going to be evaluating how well your unit does after you leave your, your division, your department, your team, your company, after you leave, you're going to be super invested. It, this whole idea that I'm the man, I'm going to make the decisions. Everything's going to be come to me. That's not going to work anymore. And, and, and I know people who love that and they actually perform acts of sabotage by hiding information or not telling their relief everything when they leave because they actually deep in their hearts for some reason they want things to go bad when they leave and well i know why it isn't it's not it's not a secret it's just because then they can point back and say how 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 necessary they were and and and, and then this whole thing and then when people look at 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 uh, reviews, oh, yeah, that ship fell apart after XYZ left. That's a plus. I'm telling you that should be a negative. So, um, like I said, when, when you start to, to realize that the whole thing is designed about telling people what to do and, and it, it really undervalues thinking, I mean, the whole reason we have to do, quote, brainstorming sessions, oh, this is a special meeting. We're, and in this special meeting, don't pay attention to rank, and we're going to call each other by our first names, and we're going to use this whiteboard, and blah, blah, all ideas are going to be based on merit. Like, the whole re like, that should tell you that thinking is not part of the normal way we do work, because we have to have a special thinking <laughs> meeting. It's so obvious. Like, you don't have a breathing program because breathing is a normal <laughs> part of work. But if you wanted to have a swimming program or a thinking program, you're just admitting it's not a normal part of work. It's so, it's so hilarious when I look at these things. And here's the worst one, a leadership development program. What does that tell you? Leadership development is not part of work. You can have, programs to develop leaders, but they need to be in bed. The people responsible for developing the next generation of leaders are the people in leadership right now. It's not some other team. I mean, they can bring in resources and that kind of thing. Yeah. I often think of that, like the idea of a Formula One race where the pit stop is like a leadership development program. The real race is won on the track. So it's the same with innovation. It's the same with leadership. It's using it and doing it on a constant basis that where you spot opportunities and threats and everything like that. And that's when the development's done. But but I wanted we're running out of time, I wanted to share one thing that I thought you, you, you said brilliantly, because I've worked in legacy organizations, and people become cogs in the machine. Now, there's a certain amount of responsibility they need to take for that. You say, people get comfortable with this, there's a cost to the people at the end of this which only becomes evident over time because people who are treated as followers treat others as followers when it's their turn to lead. And I thought that was a key line. Yeah, I, uh, I would get really frustrated because uh, I'm going to say something that's a little bit unfair, uh, but it's you know, structurally it's true, is I would look at, uh, as I was coming up through the ranks, I said, well, who's getting, why are our admirals and generals seem so, la have what I perceive as a lack of courage? Like, what is this person afraid of? And I, and I work with, closely in particular with one 
Uh, I was a flag lieutenant for uh, sort of like a personal assistant. And like this, you're, you have like nothing to fear. You've been promoted to near the top of the organization. You have retirement. Like, what are you afraid of? And we would always say, oh, we, you know, organization always promotes the best leaders to the top. I, I actually don't think that's true. I think we promote the best followers to the top. I think we promote the people who are adept at attaching their star to the, a rising star, two levels above them who attached his or her star to a rising star. And then it's, it's basically it's feudalism. And then you pledge fealty and they drag you along. And then when, when, when they get to the top, they bring their people. And, and then we're surprised because the people at the top exhibit the behaviors of people who, who have to look left and right and, and, and throw a bunch of straw in the air before they can make a decision because they have no inner moral compass and they have to see which, you know, what, what the organization or something, you know, I don't know. And it was, um, it gets perpetuated down through the, um, we had a scandal in the military. It was horrible where, uh, it was even worse than that because then these guys would then go out and get jobs as consultants. And then their protégés who are now running the military would then hire them for like $250 an hour to quote mentor them. And so there was this, all, all these little companies where these retired admirals were making all this and generals were making all this taxpayer money, quote, mentoring the people. Like if you've done a good job, you, they wouldn't need you now when you're 60 out and out to pasture and they're, 50, 55, running the Navy. And and, and it was just, it was really terrible. I was so distraught and disappointed when I saw that. Yeah. Sorry, dear man. And um, I'm just wary of our, our, sorry, dear man. And um, I'm just wary of our our time. And uh, I I thought, I thought, I know David's going off to do uh, an event now. So he's, he's booked up quite a lot with keynotes, et cetera. David, I'm going to pull a quote I loved to finish with and, I'm just going to pull that separately, but I'd love you to as well give a parting message. But before we do, I just want to remind our audience that your latest book, Leadership as Language, has just come out. And in that, you build on what you teach in Turn the Ship Around, showing us how to lead our teams to success through the language that we use. Where can people find you, David, for your keynotes and for your books, etc.? Our program's called Intent-Based Leadership because of this magic word, intent. Intent-Based Leadership, just Google that. Uh, websites intentbasedleadership.com. Uh, we we have a presence on uh, LinkedIn, but I think the most fun thing for most people will be to go to YouTube and type in leadership nudges. And we've been doing this for six years now, where every week I'll put out a little. It's just really sh- I try and keep it really short, like sixty seconds of content, and mine, and maybe fifteen second trailer or something. But the idea is in a tiny nugget. So things like um, start the question with the word how, it, and you can't ask a binary question, like not are you sure, but how sure are you? And then we have little activities. For example, one of the things that I used to love to do, we always had all of our executive teams doing this. One of the very first things was the next time, the next three times you go out to eat, you can't order. You need to get the server to choose your meal for you and you not even know what it is until they put it in front of you. Well, this is delegation on steroids for something as <laughs> momentous as one meal out of, <laughs> and um, 
it's super interesting because you have to, you have to understand like how, how much anxiety does that give me not knowing what I'm actually going to get? And then how, how do I make it safe for them to make this decision for me? <laughs> and, and I can tell you, this was the closest feeling that I can get in an environment that everybody understands for how it felt every hour of every day when I was taking that crew through the, uh, of the Santa Fe through this thing, because it was always back to me. It was, my, it was like, I was the worst. I was the worst at adhering to our new, we'd shaken hands on a new compact of how we were going to operate. I was not going to tell them what to do. They were going to tell me what they intended to do. And the biggest violator of that contract was me because my head just kept screaming. No, it's too uncertain. It's too unsure. You need to step up and it's not the picture, blah, blah, blah. Fortunately, they were quite forgiving. And just a reminder, David turned around the Santa Fe from the worst to the first in a year. So record turnaround, fantastic result. And I, I said I'd finish with a quote, David. I pulled this quote. I absolutely loved it because it really spoke from where you wrote this book, I thought. And I'm going to finish on that. And then I'd love you to finish up with your message to our audience. You said, I imagine a world where we all find satisfaction in our work. It is a world where every human being is intellectually engaged, motivated and self-inspired. Our cognitive capacity as a race is fully engaged in solving the monumental problems that we face. I love that. And I thought that was a beautiful way to finish and sign off from my perspective. What about you, David? How would you like to finish off today's show? Thank you very much. And, and, and thanks for everyone who's part of helping us be better as, as an individual company species. I think the most constrained resource in your organization is right here between our ears. The most constrained resource is the, th is the thinking space for, for people. And when we, we, we build structures where we have to channel decisions to a single person and it just doesn't, and then we say, well, why are we moving so slowly? Well, your, your system is designed to move slowly. <laughs> so it's hard. You don't have to. But listen to the words that you say. Tape yourself in a meeting and then, and then look for all these things. At, just count binary questions. How many times did I ask, is it, will it, could it, as opposed to how could it or how would it? And then just tweak that a little bit. Author of Turn the Ship Around and Leadership is Language, Captain David Marquet, thank you for joining us. Cheers. Well done. <laughs>